on stage, he's a Tony Award winner, but his greatest claim to fame is creating and embodying one of the most memorable, hilarious, and neurotic characters in TV comedy history. He is Jason Alexander. I'm Jerry Strauss. This is The Laugh Track, and this week, we got George Costanza. Don't go anywhere, it's coming up. Do you need your weekly comedy fix? Relax while we visit the sitcoms you love, the jokes you remember, the characters you will never forget, and the stars that bring them to you. Sit back, it's The Laugh Track with Jerry Strauss. Hello again, everyone. We are here on The Laugh Track. I am Jerry Strauss, and we thank you so much once again for joining us this week. Of course, it's a big one. We said it at the top. None other than Jason Alexander, the man who, for so many years, ruled the ratings as part of Seinfeld, playing George Costanza, one of the most memorable characters in TV history, bar none. And what a great conversation we're about to have. Just want to let you know, this is actually kind of a unique situation. This is not a conversation that we had planned originally for this show at all, so you're going to notice the format's a little bit different. We don't have a special episode that we go in and deep dive into. This was actually a chat that we had for a magazine that I've been lucky enough to write for for many years. Many of you may have actually gotten wind of this show through my work in uh, in that magazine. Of course, Edge Magazine. You can check them out on edgemagonline.com, New Jersey-based magazine. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of cover stories and feature interviews for them. Everyone from, goodness, Hank Azaria, uh, Mayim Bialik, Regina King, Tiffany Thyssen, like a, a lot of cool people that I think you guys would be interested in. And we're working to try to get some of those people back to talk to them again for this show. But it's a great opportunity here because they wanted to feature Jason Alexander, and I talked to Jason himself, I talked to his representation and the magazine and said, can we use this content and give it to our listeners? Because this was a conversation that gave a lot of cool insight into Seinfeld. So uh, we were able to do it. The audio is here for you, and I hope you guys enjoy it. So without any further ado, here's Jason Alexander on the Laugh Track. Hey, Gerald, it's Jason. Hey, Jason, how are you? I'm very well, sir. I'm glad we finally were able to put this together. It's all right. It's uh, it's craziness. It's chaos out here, everyone. <laughs> are you in New Jersey? Is that what I understand? Yeah. So is there anything about your life growing up in New Jersey, your environment, whatever it may be, just something distinctly Jersey about your early life that you think might have lended itself to the success that you've been able to have? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there, I mean, without being cute about it, there are probably two things I could point to. One is sort of general and one was sort of specific to where I grew up in Jersey. But what I've found as I travel across the country and around the world is places have a kind of a, a rhythm and a music to them. New York has an accent. New York has a rhythm. L.A. has an accent. L.A. has a rhythm. Many places throughout the South or in New England, you could say the same thing. And Jersey actually does have a kind of a distinct music to the accent and a rhythm that you don't really find other places. Now you can confuse it with other, you know, if I go down towards uh, the Jersey shore, 
you can use it with places in Pennsylvania or other places along the, the coast. But Jersey has a kind of a, not quite as pugnacious as New York, not quite as tough, but there's a certain kind of a bravura to Jersey. There's a sense of humor that my Italian friends when I was growing up back in Jersey would call busting your balls. If I was in Australia, it would be called take the piss out of the guy. It's, it's this self-deprecating, we sort of taunt each other on what could be soft spots, but it's all done with love and affection. Nothing really has a, a, a malicious intent. And there's a, there's a pace to Jersey. It's, it's kind of got a quick pace. It has a little bit of a, its sound is informed by what we think of as Italian, Jewish. It's not a laid back sound. So there's a sense of humor and an attitude about Jersey that I think I was steeped in growing up. And that in some ways informed a lot of some of the early characters that I was asked to do. And in some ways gave me, it wasn't honest because if people really knew me, they knew that I was kind of a shy, intimidated kid, but I had a cover for it that had a kind of a Jersey swagger to it. And so people who didn't know me well thought that I came off as, not only rock confident, but somehow cocky. Mm. And I think initially that gave people a sense of confidence about hiring me that was totally disproportionate to my ability. (laughs) it It was all just swag. And so I think that may have served me well. And then the other thing that was sort of specific to New Jersey was when I moved from, I think I was 12 years old, or at least in my memory, I was 12 moved from Maplewood, New Jersey, to Livingston, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And in the initiation process of being a new kid in a new town, the first kids that picked me up were these theater kids because Livingston had this really active financial and community support for the arts. So there was an organization called the Livingston Teen Theater. It was not affiliated with any of the schools. It was all by itself. And just like a sports team, it was financed by the community and it was given resources by the community. And that was my entree into the theater. Those kids, that organization, the first two or three shows I ever did in my life was right there in Livingston and through the auspices of that teen theater. And It was with those kids became my friends. They became my community. And with those kids, I began going to the theater in New York and seeing what the mecca of American theater could offer and getting inspired by that and eventually aspiring to that. So I think those two specifics may have been a large part of certainly the the second, the, the Livingston part certainly set me on a very specific path. But I think a sort of generalized, pugnacious sense of humor and daring and bravura that kind of went with being a Jersey guy at that time was a good stew for me to sort of simmer in as I began my career. Very cool. Now, you know, you mentioned your beginnings exploring and discovering the theater, and that's a a huge part of your career. Was that really your sole focus uh, for a chunk of time when you first started out and looked to make acting your career, was it going to initially be all about being on the stage and more towards you know Shakespeare and more classic theater? 
Well, it was certainly all about the theater. I, I had no, when I was a kid standing in my living room, holding the hairbrush and accepting it as the award, it was always the Tony award. It was not an Oscar or an Emmy. My focus was really on how great it would be to be able to have a career in the Broadway theater, if that was possible for me. The truth is my, my first professional jobs were in front of cameras. I got into my first acting union by doing a pilot for a children's musical theater sort of television show idea. And then my first professional jobs after that were, were television commercials. So I was professionally performing in front of cameras before I was professionally performing in front of audiences. But my eye was always on the theater and then everything else that happened was a happy accident. But I did think I was going to be more of a dramatic actor than a comedic actor. I don't know why I thought that. I, 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 I guess because I didn't think of myself as particularly funny. And I was impressed with actors that seemed to have this great command and power on stage and thought I could emulate that because I was delusional. I didn't look in a lot of mirrors when I was young. <laughs> and I didn't see that I was you know, five foot five and 30 pounds overweight and already balding at the age of 18. So it had to be pointed out to me later in college. And that's when I started to understand perhaps comedy might have more opportunity for me. <laughs> Obviously, a big part of aspiration is looking up to people, whether it's somebody that you're close with and have direct contact with or just, you know, somebody that you look up to and try to emulate. Did you have somebody like that in those early days, and did that change as your goals and your kind of career path also changed? Well, I had, I, I think everybody has heroes. There were actors that were inspirational to me, and they were an odd group of actors. You know, it wasn't the sort of standard run. I became interested in acting at first by becoming a Star Trek fan and being completely smitten with Bill Shatner as Kirk and thinking that that kind of over-the-top, large, interesting, you know, hyper-masculine, hyper-theatrical approach was something that really appealed to me. In the musical world, I mentioned, so I started going to, into New York to, to watch theater with these kids I was doing teen theater with, and one of the earliest shows that we saw was a matinee uh, of the original production of Pippin, and I had the same experience with Ben Vereen. Ben Vereen came on that stage and he was so charismatic and so mysterious and so powerful and magical and that I thought, oh, wow, that's the kind of musical work I'd like to be able to do. So, And they were just two of many. I, I, there, were, there were all kinds of performances and actors that I, I was smitten with, but they were generally performances from actors of enormous power. You know, I remember seeing James Earl Jones do King Lear in Central Park, and that was you know, burned into my brain as one of the great performances. So there were those kinds of actors that I wanted to emulate and aspire to. But in my life, there were some pretty extraordinary people that I was hanging around. That now they, they never went on to become well-known names. I think they were certainly known in our community. But there was an actor and there was an acting musician in my world when I was growing up in Livingston. There was a, a guy who was just a few years older than me by the name of Richard Crater, who was a student at Livingston High when I was still in, in middle school. And 
Rich was a, a consummate actor. He, he was really rather extraordinary. He did a, a, a Tevya and Fiddler on the Roof at Livingston High School that to this day rivals any of the professional Tevyas I've ever seen. I don't know how he was able to, to bring himself to that role at such a young age, but it was an extraordinary performance. And then there was a guy who just recently passed away, I'm sorry to say, uh, a friend of mine named Robert Pollock. Robert was also a rather wonderful actor and singer, and Robert was a kind of freaky, consummate musician. I don't think Robert ever had a piano lesson or a music lesson, but he had perfect pitch, and he was one of these guys that if he heard a song, he could turn around and play it on the piano. And so both of these guys were inspirational figures to me, and, and I certainly became friendly with Robert. I didn't get to know Richard that well, but there was a lot of performance talent around me at the time. And the guy that I really credit when I was recently inducted into the New Jersey Hall of Fame, uh, he was the guy that inducted me, was my drama teacher in high school, a guy named Robert Lamp. And Bob really took me under his wing, took me very seriously, was incredibly encouraging, and started funneling all kinds of additional opportunities to me while I was in school, he would have me dramaturg, he would have me direct, he would have me write, he would have me do all kinds of things because he so believed that I could have a voice in the industry and he just wanted me to experience as many different aspects of it as I could while I was there. So lots of role models, lots of inspirational people around me, both that I didn't know and that I, and that I was growing up with. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about your amazing theater career and, you know, obviously a Tony winner and just an amazing career path in that direction. But what actually led you to then making that turn and veering towards TV and then landing on Seinfeld? I, like most actors and, and still to this day, you get led by the nose of opportunity. I never had, I never made any hard and fast rule about doing or not doing film or television or anything else that came along. I was a young guy, a working actor, and just about any opportunity to make a living was okay by me. I was very fortunate in that a lot of the stuff that came my way, even if it wasn't the most successful projects in the world, I got to work with extraordinary people. So if you take my first Broadway role, you know, Merrily We Roll Along is not a successful production, but it's Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim and George Firth and Paul Gemignani and Ron Field, extraordinary people to be tutored by. And the next one up on Broadway for me, The Rink, again, probably not one of the biggest shows, but Candor and Ebb, Terrence McNally, Graziella Danielle, and then Cheetah Rivera and Eliza Minnelli. So the ability to learn, and then from Neil Simon and from Jerome Robbins, so that was just very fortunate. But the, the turn to television and film, to the extent that it happened, was, uh, you know, there's a casting director in town. They saw you on stage. They think you, you might be viable. You go in, you meet a director, or you put something down on tape, and, you, and the dice roll. I mean, I, there, was no, there was no magic formula, and it, it wasn't through connections that I'm aware of. It was, it was uh, with the Seinfeld show. It was literally that they had seen a ton of people in L.A. They hadn't found anyone that they quite clicked with for whatever reason. They called a New York casting director who knew me and said, this is the kind of guy we think we're looking for 
put 20 actors on tape and I was one of the 20 guys. And if they hadn't, if she hadn't thought of me, uh, you know, I wouldn't have been part of Seinfeld as my guest. So it's all just happy circumstance until you start getting to a, to a point where you can kind of guide or nurture your own choices. But, you know, even, even when I was at my A level and playing my A game, I think there's only about 40 of them in Hollywood who are picking and choosing what they're going to do next and then actually get it done. So you believe in the wind and you, you're constantly casting yourself out there and hoping somebody will pick you up and whatever medium it's in is fine. If it's good people on a worthwhile project, you go for it. And then you, you see how fortune treats it. Did you feel like, you know, as someone who was coming from the stage largely, and I don't know if you've done any sitcom stuff before Seinfeld at all, but like, did you look at that type of work as a form of theater? Like, did you feel like there, there was commonalities between the two because of the studio? Audience? Very much. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the multicam sitcom is closer to me. It's closer to theater than it is to other kinds of television or film. I am always aware in single camera filmmaking I'm always aware of the camera. In fact, I, I'm always probably a little too aware of the camera. Really fine film actors are able to, I think they sort of just ignore the camera. They don't see it. It's not there for them. They're, not, they're neither compelled nor intimidated by it. I'm always a little aware of the camera. But in, in Seinfeld in particular, or multicam sitcoms in general, the cameras are a good distance back. There's three or four of them. And you're not really playing for them. You're not having to hit tape marks in quite the same way. You're really much more free to exist and play the scenes to that live audience. So for me, it was always a more theatrical experience than a filmed experience. And when I look back at a lot of the Seinfeld episodes, or even I did do a couple of television projects prior to Seinfeld. Not, none of them were long running, but I had some experience. But it, it was always a learning curve with television because fortunately Seinfeld was a show that played really big. All those performances are quite large, which was great because I was always playing for the live audience, which was a hundred feet away and the cameras were only 12 feet away. So initially I was always concerned that my performance was just too big for a television screen, but the size of, of the Seinfeld show, the size of that comedy was very friendly to someone who works as large as I do. Cool. You know, looking back at, at the cast of the show, of course, you know, you guys are known for just having that seamless chemistry. Um, and people think of you as a true ensemble. Uh, but everyone kind of came from different backgrounds. There is like a mix of personalities, but certainly a mix of backgrounds for all of you heading into the show. Was it like a different sort of process for you as opposed to working with a bunch of theater people or, you know, people with more of a common background for you guys to mesh and find the common ground of how you were going to, to perform together? No, not, not really. Um, although I totally appreciate what you're saying about the different journeys that we all took before we got to that show. That's certainly true. But I remember the only conversation I ever had with any of them about how do we do this was initially during the pilot with Jerry, we were rehearsing a scene uh, in the diner. And I remember Jerry saying, Hey, I, you know, would it be okay if I just, you know, there's a, when we were writing this, we kind of heard a different reading here and there. Would it be okay if I, 
if I told you how we heard it. And I said, absolutely, absolutely. Please tell me how you heard it. And if I understand it, if it makes sense to me, I'm happy to do it. I said, if it doesn't make sense to me, you may have to explain it to me or we may have to talk about it. But absolutely, I'm, I, I'm not an actor who is afraid to hear a line reading if that's the best way you can make me understand what your intention is. I said, conversely, <laughs> can I talk to you about what the hell you're doing in this scene? Because you and I are having an argument, but you're not really fighting on your side. So I'm, I'm punching into jello to make this really fly. You've got to kind of stand up to me a little bit more. And so in that moment, the quiet agreement that Jerry and I had was that he would help me be, be funnier <laughs> and help guide me towards the character of George that they had in their head. And I, in a very general, and I don't mean to say that, you know, we were constantly doing this, but there was an opening there, considering Jerry was my boss, where I could say, you need to try to get more out of this or the scene isn't going to work. There's nothing I can do if you don't do that thing fully. So that was the only time any of us that I remember actually talked about, you know, how, how would we work together? How, how would we accomplish this? The rest of it really was the best arranged marriage I could ever point to. There is no reason, given kind of how different we are as people and how different our journeys were to get there, there's no obvious reason why this ensemble of four would click the way it did. I can only tell you from my memory and my vantage point that I, and you know it's true of Jerry because you see him smiling through every episode in the early ones, I just enjoyed watching everybody work. I enjoyed being there so much. I enjoyed how wonderful they were at what they were doing that I think it was the fact that we enjoyed watching each other in our moments that made us support each other's moments. There was not a sense of he's got more lines than me or she's got funnier stuff to do or it was all... We've all got great stuff to do, and look how we get to pass this ball back and forth. And very, very quickly, which was unusual because the show was not a hit. So generally, you would you would think everyone would be all hands for themselves. Uh, grab what you can get. This ship's going to go down, and I, I want to be the one holding the uh, the life preserver. But there was really more of a sense of no, you know, we're in this together, and let's have fun while we're here. And so. That sense of unity and that sense of ensemble and that sense of selflessness established itself very quickly and, and uh, very organically, and we never lost it. We were always a group that enjoyed coming to work. We enjoyed rehearsing. We would rehearse, I think, more than a lot of successful shows did. We would spend an hour, two or three on, on a scene trying to see if there was anything else we could get out of it and do with it. So, you know, Jerry himself has an amazing work ethic as a comedian, and we all kind of came to the process with a similar intensity and, and purpose and dedication, and it all just clicked that way. You know, it's interesting that you, you know, you, know, you mentioned the show being more theater than TV to you. Coming from that perspective, you know, everyone has their favorite Seinfeld moments and episodes, but from your perspective, being on that stage, as it were, do you remember a particular moment or a scene or an episode 
that you hold favorite as a favorite to you as a performer that really clicked like with the studio audience in the moment? Well, the one that we would, I'm sure we would all point to because it was, it was insane how well it worked. So in the Marine biologist episode where, um, I, I kind of, forgive me, I remember every episode based on what I was doing in it. So in, the marine bio, in the marine biologist, Jerry had pawned me off to an old girlfriend that I was trying to get reacquainted with as having become a marine biologist. And I was trying to live up to the lie that Jerry had established. And the end of my storyline in that episode as written was that while walking on the beach with this girl, suddenly there was a beached whale and somebody yells out, is there a marine biologist? Is anybody here a marine biologist? And I, you know, having hoisted on my own petard, had to strip down and kind of walk into the ocean knowing I don't know what the hell I'm going to do when I get there. And that was really the end of my story. There was another storyline where one aspect of it was that Kramer was hitting golf balls into the ocean to practice his swing. Right. And I don't remember what the original final scene of that episode was, but on tape night with the audience, we had filmed my scene at the ocean. They played it back so they could record the audience's laughs in response to it. And then I was done and they sat down to do the final scene of the episode and it was fine, but it wasn't quite the boffo ending that Jerry and Larry always wanted to get. They, they are diligent about getting the big laugh. And the scene they had written, as good as it was, wasn't satisfying to them. And whenever that would happen, it would usually be about a line or a piece of business in the scene. It was never about a whole scene that I remember. But in this case, they were rethinking the whole scene. And Jerry and Larry and the writers kind of circled the wagons and they powwowed. And a couple minutes later, Larry came over to me and he said, how quickly could you learn a monologue? I said, well, how long is the monologue? And he said, you know, page, page and a half. I said, just a, a couple minutes. So he wrote out uh, on the back of a, of a page of the script, this monologue about the sea was angry that day, my friends, which was basically what happened when George went out and saw the whale. Right. And within that monologue, they came up with a way to match the ending of the Kramer storyline with the ending of the George storyline, which was that the whale was beached because it had gotten a golf ball in its blowhole and right. <laughs> couldn't see So... They wrote the scene. We never rehearsed the scene. They literally wrote it in front of the audience. Wow. And we all went, this is really good. You know, as we were reading it to each other, we went, oh, this is really good. We all memorized our part. We sat down. We did one quick run through of it with screens in front of us so that the audience couldn't see anything we were prepping. And we only did that so that the cameras would know what shots they were supposed to get. And then they take the, the, the screens away and they go, okay, we're going to try a new scene. And for the first and only time, we perform the scene that is now the one everybody sees when they watch that episode. Well, to be able to have gotten to a place with our characters and our knowledge of the show, the style of the show, the comedy of the show, the understanding how we would each work as an ensemble, knowing how our cameras captured us, we nailed that thing in one take. And when I pulled the golf ball out of my pocket, Michael's reaction to the golf ball, Jerry's reaction to the golf I mean, everything was just absolutely magical. And that audience, the live audience, laughed 
for a solid, I, I kid you not, a solid minute, which is, that's a huge laugh. I mean, if you get a, a minute of laughter where you cannot go on, Michael has that line as Kramer where he goes, is that a Titleist? Hole in one, I guess. He couldn't say that line for a minute after I pulled the golf ball out. That was the most extraordinary live experience, studio audience experience. But it also really was a great marker for where we were as an ensemble, where we were in our command of of how to do the show. That the writers could write to our characters in that split second and with virtually no rehearsal we knew how to play that scene. That was something I won't, I will just never forget. It was an extraordinary moment. That's an amazing story. Um, yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> and I know I'm keeping you long, so I apologize. Cool. No just a couple quick more questions. Um, yeah. Just, yeah, I mean, we want to talk about some of the other things that you have done or continue to do as well. Um, voiceover work. We were curious, is that something that you have come to enjoy on the same level of the other work that you've done? Is it something that you look to continue to do in the future? <laughs> it certainly is fun. I, the stuff that I've been able to do, for the most part, is is a joy. The bulk of my voiceover work were things like Duckman, which was, that was a really funny, interesting show the polar opposite of the Seinfeld experience where all of us were recording in a vacuum. We had no idea what the other performers were doing until we saw the show. So that was always a miracle that that ensemble worked so well. The Disney animation work that I've been able to do, you know, it, it's always fun. It's just always fun. It is very freeing. It is not hard work to do. It just requires imagination and, and some vocal ability. But it's really fun. I, I'm doing one right now that seems to be a hit, and I assume we're coming back. It is a Warner Brothers uh, series of Harley Quinn, the Joker's uh, uh, sidekick girlfriend. Right. And it is a very adult cartoon, and I have this recurring character of a, a wheelchair-bound, half-cyborg, half-old Jewish man <laughs> a villain, uh, Cyborgman. Um, that you know, we've been having a great time doing that. So they pop up all the time, and when they do, it's always a pleasure. Nice. Uh, you've also been doing magic for a long time. Is that something that you look at as a hobby? Is it something that you would like to take to the public? And is it something <laughs> that you find? Uh, do you find it to be an experience similar to to theater, were you to do it, you know, for an audience? Uh, uh. Well, I will tell you that it is what I thought up until I moved to Livingston and fell in with those theater kids. It is what I thought my life was going to be. I love magic, and I really wanted to be a very good magician. I worked fairly studiously at it as a kid, I mean, as much as you can. Unfortunately, the kind of magic that I admire the most and wanted to do the most uh, was close to magic with cards and coins and, and small props. And I'm not terribly good at it. I, I mean, I'm okay, but my hands are not built for it. And, and I think my personality was not built for the kind of discipline that it takes to get extraordinary at it. So at age 12 or 13, I, I really was aware enough to know I wasn't as good as I wanted to be or needed to be. And that's when theater sort of replaced that. But I've always loved magic. I've been a member of the Magic Castle since I moved to Los Angeles. And I had a really interesting experience where the castle was going through some 
difficult times financially, they asked if I would perform for a week and I created an act. It took me three months to create it and I was very proud of it. And at the end of that time, I won this award of uh, Parlor Magician of the Year at the Magic Castle, which was, it was a huge thing for me. I love magic. I will tell you, I have never been so frightened in my life as when I was performing that act. The technical, the, everything has to go right. There is no room for a mistake. It's really daunting. If it goes wrong, you cannot save it with a funny ad lib. Yes, you can make it a, a better comedy moment, but you can't make it a magical moment. So it really is walking a tightrope. I do love it. And I will tell you that my friend Max Maven, he performs under the name Max Maven, and he is a mentalist magician. And I was doing more or less a mentalism act at the castle. And uh, Max, at the end of it, gave me the greatest compliment anyone could ever give me. He said, you know, if you wanted to be a lot less famous and a lot less wealthy, you could really do this. <laughs> and I knew exactly what he meant. And I was I was very flattered. I bring magic like I'm I'm uh, directing. We're in pre-production now if the world comes back for a play that I'm doing uh, out of town first, and then it has a path to Broadway right now. There are four moments in it that the minute I read the script, I went, well, this, these are magic tricks. And the creators and the production team didn't realize they were magic tricks until I said, nope, this is a magic trick. And I went out and got great magic consultants and magic builders to make sure that we could do this thing well. So I do tend to see the world, sometimes even with shots, when I was uh, directing an episode of Criminal Minds, I was able to use some principles of magic to get shots that otherwise we would have had to do in post-production and it would have been a much more expensive process. But because I understood the principles of magic, I could create, I could make it all happen in front of the camera. So it informs a lot of what I do and how I think about performance and uh, when I'm directing, it's always there. But I don't think you're going to see me touring with David Copperfield anytime soon. <laughs> One last question for you. Um, we talked about the five million things that you've done already in your career. Is there anything you have not yet done that you'd like to do? Totally different direction. Not necessarily within um, the entertainment industry. I, I, you know, I've been disproportionately uh, blessed here to be able to do everything from being an actor to singer, producer, writer, director, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to do a lot more of all of it, but nothing new and different. The one thing that I, in an abstract way, and I, and I don't know what it becomes in a more realistic way, is I'd love to start finding a way to actually be of service to people and particularly young people in a different way. And I, I believe, based on the, the amount of it that I've done, that I would love to be able to spend some time before I check out of this world where I put a lot more focus on becoming a teacher. I've been teaching actors and doing master classes and doing extended workshops for 30 years. And the joy and the satisfaction that I get from those experiences is equal, if not even greater, to what I get from doing a good performance or creating a good project. There's something that is very gratifying to me about watching people find their way in something that is hard to teach. You know, you can teach 
math, you can teach science, you can teach language. And I'm not saying that those things are easy to teach by any stretch of the imagination, but they're not interpretive necessarily. They're, they're factual and they have real standard tools which you can use to try and convey a technique to your student. But in the arts, it is much more instinctual. It's much more how you relate to your student, what it is that you think will is the thing they need most next. And there is something so satisfying and beautiful about having a, a successful connection that results in a student making a discovery they might not have made with anyone else. And I think I'd like to be able to do more of that before I check out. Fantastic. Well, that's all I got, Jason. You've covered everything. <laughs> yeah, we're good to go. So thank you so much again for doing this. My pleasure, Gerald. And you guys stay safe. I hope everything turns out okay for your family. Yes, thank you. Yours as well. Appreciate uh, it. One of the, uh, when I'm in Jersey, we'll bump into each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks so much for your time. You take care. You too. Have a great night. Thanks. Bye now. The Laugh Track Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Jerry Strauss, with editing and additional production by our friend Steve Prentice. As always, we've got some major guests lined up and some other news coming up in short order, so please be sure to follow us on Twitter. We've got our own handle, Laugh Track TV is the handle on Twitter, or check out our Facebook page, of course, facebook.com backslash laughtrackpod to find out when these new episodes will go live uh, and everything that we have coming up. If you have a comment about the podcast or a guest suggestion for a future episode, drop me a line at laughtrackpod at outlook.com. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. While you're there, uh, please consider leaving a review. That certainly helps us uh, a great deal. And finally, please help us spread the word by telling at least just one person about this show. Someone who enjoys TV as much as you do, as much as we do. We know there's so many of you out there. Let them know about the show so you can have them join in on the fun and make this thing grow. It makes all the difference. So until next time, I am Jerry Strauss, reminding you that wherever you go, there you are. Stay safe, keep laughing, and we'll see you next time.